guess that I would say that, you know, I, I expect that this is all going to be resolved in the next few years. That, that, that is, I, I just don't see a scenario where COVID is going to be a permanent fixture of the Chinese economy. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at how the Chinese economy recovers after the lifting of its zero COVID policy. The policy sparked street protests in recent weeks, The communist central government started rolling back multiple draconian measures it had put in place to prevent COVID outbreaks, including mass testing, lengthy quarantines and lockdowns, all of which also had a destabilizing influence on China's economy. Our guest is Cheng Taishi, the Phyllis and Erwin Winkelried Professor of Economics at the Booth School of Business. He's been a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Banks of San Francisco, New York, and Minneapolis, as well as the World Bank and the Economic Planning Agency in Japan. He specializes in research on economic growth and development. Chang Taishi, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I want to start actually by asking you uh, for some thoughts on the very idea that public protest prompted some of this governmental change in China, uh, just how remarkable is it in 2022? Uh, with the caveat, of course, that the Chinese government uh, and leader Xi Jinping do not acknowledge that the protests had anything to do with the easing of zero COVID policies. Um, ha- how big is this? Let me just say that I was really surprised by the reaction of the Chinese government to the protests. I did not expect them to change their strategy in response to the protests. The last time something like this happened in China was in 1989. That obviously uh, ended up very differently. Um, I think the difference this time is that once, one, the protests were contained, and they were also making demands that I think were consistent with what the government has been trying to do. What, what I think that we've been seeing in the last one year is that the government seems to have been groping for a way out of zero COVID, but didn't quite know the way out. And I still don't think it really knows the way out. It almost feels to me like it's it's a panicked reaction to the protest, that, that now the danger is that they're going to lift up the COVID restrictions without any of the other things that needs to get done to make sure that we don't get a huge pandemic in China, which which is going to be a problem for China, but it's also going to be potentially a huge problem for the rest of the world. So just imagine COVID going through 1.5 billion people and all the new variants of COVID that we're going to get. Uh, But it is pretty remarkable. I did not expect to see what we saw in the last week. Well, let's talk about some of the economic headwinds for China as it eases these restrictions. Um, Here in the States and throughout the West, really, we saw an almost immediate economic bounce in the wake of vaccines, the end of quarantines, People spent a lot of money that they had saved during lockdown. They started traveling. The housing market was strong. Wall Street was fat and happy. Um, All of this despite the supply chain issues that we all know about. 
And then, of course, everything changed this year. Uh, but compare for us where the West was at the start of its recovery a year and a half, two years ago, to where China is now at the potential start of its recovery. Let me say that there are two key differences uh, in, in China's situation relative to, say, where the West was. Number one, China never had, and it doesn't look like they will, the large stimulus programs that the West had. So there wasn't all this extra cash that was, uh, that was handed out by, by the government. In, in, in the case of the U.S., it was something like $25 trillion. China never did that. I would say that the second thing is, is that the downturn due to COVID in China has really been only something that we've seen in the last six months. It started with sort of with the rolling crack uh, with the rolling lockdowns that we we saw in the spring, and then the massive lockdown of Shanghai, and it accelerated after Shanghai. So it, it was still much shorter, like uh, in terms of the downturn that we saw. But because I, I guess the thing that you've got to remember is that China was relatively open in the first two years of the pandemic. There was this big lockdown in the city of Wuhan in the spring of 2020. And then afterwards, for roughly a year and a half or two years, there was basically nothing in terms of the lockdowns. So I, I guess I expect there to be some recovery, but I, I don't expect it to be on the same scale as what we saw in the West. And I guess I would also say that they, they are much, I think, much deeper long-run issues that face the Chinese economy that have nothing to do with the COVID lockdown. And these things are still going to remain with us. Such as? The main thing that's been occurring in the last five years has been the crackdown on the largest and the most successful Chinese firms. It started in 2018 with the crackdown on the large financial conglomerates. It accelerated in 2020 and 2021 with the crackdown on the largest Chinese tech firms. What's been happening is that the largest and the most successful Chinese firms in the last five years has been finding things just a lot more difficult. And this is where the best and the brightest of China used to work for. Uh, so it's having, I think, very big effects on the Chinese economy. And I, I don't think this is going to end. And it has nothing to do with COVID. Can you just describe what you mean by a crackdown on these large businesses? What, what does that look like? Maybe the best example is what's happened to Alibaba. Which is, is it, isn't that kind of the Amazon of China? It's more, it is like the Amazon, but it's a lot more than the Amazon of China. It, it does a lot more things. They also run a bank-like service. Payment system, yeah. They, they have a payment system. So it's a lot broader. And I would say the way you want to think about it is that it's a lot of regulatory actions. So like the first salvo was when Ant Financial was going to go public, uh, public in the sense that it was planning to list itself on the New York Stock Exchange. And then the first salvo came when Chinese regulators said, said we're not going to allow you to list the company on the New York Stock Exchange. Then it was really a death by a thousand cuts. A whole bunch of new rules were put in place that 
says that restricted the banking activities of Ant Financial, new rules were put in place that uh, restricted the kind of products that uh, Alibaba could sell, rules were put in place or are uh, fined. So Alibaba was fined for having anti-competitive uh, business practices. So it, it's a whole list of things. And each one by themselves, you can always justify. I mean, yes, there's, there's a sense in which Alibaba has some elements of being a monopolist. There's a sense in, in which its financial activities may need some proper regulation. But the totality of all of these efforts means that the company is now shrinking. The net effect of actions like this basically means that the company is now a shadow for what it used to be. What about damage to smaller businesses over this period uh, in China during the pandemic? Uh, Here in the U.S., of course, all you have to do is walk through neighborhoods, cities, see all the for lease signs on, on restaurants and stores, other businesses that closed up shop. Did we see that in China as well? We definitely did see that in China, for sure. And then the question is whether these businesses are going to come back after the COVID restrictions are lifted. We see the contraction in the service sector. We see the contraction in small and medium-sized firms. There is damage to the Chinese economy. The question is just whether this is something that is permanent or whether it's something... Like in the U.S., I think the best of our evidence is that it just appears to have been something temporary. Whether that's going to be the same thing that we see in China... That would be my guess. Once COVID restrictions gets lifted, there's going to be this phase on, in which the pandemic is going to spread through, through is going to spread throughout China, and then there's the, there's an open question about what what are the Chinese going to do when the pandemic really spreads? Are, are they really going to let it run through the population, and then you have millions of people dying, or whether? They're gonna panic once again and and then try to roll back some of the restrictions. And then, of course, how does that affect consumers' willingness to go yeah, out and shop sure. and, and eat right. and spend money? Right, right, right. right. But I, I guess that I would say that you know I, I expect that this is all going to be resolved in the next few years. That 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 is, I I just don't see a scenario where COVID is going to be a permanent fixture of the Chinese economy. One of the other hallmarks of the recovery here in the U.S. Uh, was people leaving jobs, dropping out of the labor market, which, of course, then turned into a labor shortage, a huge demand for workers. Conventional wisdom says that part of that was because people had more money in their bank right. accounts, so they felt safer leaving the jobs they didn't like. Part of that also from the stimulus packages, which you mentioned China has not had. Um, so is there a corollary to that potentially in China at all? I don't see that at all. I, I, I don't see that at all. As I said, I mean, the key difference is, is that China has never had a stimulus package. Right. I mean, there has been a big increase in unemployment rates um, among young people. Young in, people, in, yeah. Uh, in, in China, particularly among young, young people who have graduated from universities. But I don't think that's COVID-related. I think that it's really due to the crackdown that we talked about earlier, which is that you know a, a lot of the companies that the university graduates used to work for, they're no longer hiring. And the businesses that have suffered from COVID are really, um, I'm going to say, the low-skilled service sector jobs, which, which is not where college graduates go to. I wonder if you might talk um, a little bit about what China's reopening means uh, to the global economy, which in large part is right now reacting to high inflation and trying to tamp down on 
on consumer activity. Um, so what happens when you have all this potential new demand for goods and services that could follow on a reopening in China? You're adding fresh demand from Chinese consumers to the global market. What what effect does that have? My guess is that it's going to be a wash because the way that you, you I think, I, at least the way that I think about it is that, yes, there's this fresh demand that's coming from Chinese consumers, but there's also going to be this fresh supply that's coming from Chinese firms. So I think that on, on net is just going to be a wash in terms of what it implies for inflation rates in the U.S., say. If anything, I think that it might be a net positive just because China is is running a trade surplus with the rest of the world. So it so that would suggest that the supply effect is going to be larger than the than the effect of Chinese demand. Uh, let's get back to what you were addressing earlier, which is some of the factors going on here, uh, really separate and aside from COVID and the pandemic. You mentioned the crackdown on technology companies, some of the largest companies in China. Uh, Where do you see that going from here, and what are some of the other factors that you would say are going to really play into China's economy moving forward over the next, say, two, three years? I would say that there are two key forces that I would be keeping my eyes on in China. And I actually do think that these are more important than covid Number one is what I think is behind the crackdown on the large firms, which is the way I think about it, is that it's about the struggle to reconcile the desire to have political control along with a dynamic private economy. And the way I think about it is is that there was a sense that having a lot of successful entrepreneurs once they become very, very successful, that means that they become very wealthy. Once they become very wealthy, then the wealth implies that they then potentially can become a source of independent political power. And the crackdown, I think of it as an effort to try to make sure that people who are wealthy don't ever pose a threat to the Chinese Communist Party, that it's this trade-off between economic growth and political control. And you said there was a second factor? It's related to this this idea of political control, but it's coming from a different source that I would say that the other thing that's going on is that it's very clear that Chinese leaders view that they are under siege from the rest of the world. In early October, the U.S. government issue some new rules that basically cut off all U.S. supplies of semiconductors and semiconductor manufacturing equipment to every single Chinese firm, and not just every single Chinese firm, but to American firms that produce in China. And on top of that, what they also did is that they also made it illegal for a U.S. national to work for a Chinese semiconductor firm. And this is a security issue, right? Well, that was a sense that it was really important for American national security that we kill the Chinese semiconductor sector. So in terms of the, the restrictions on the U.S. citizens, I've never seen that before. The reason that is really damaging is because all of the engineers and all the scientists and, and it was something like three quarters of the CEOs of the Chinese semiconductor companies are U.S. citizens. 
So it's basically lopping off all of their talent. There's, there's a real fear on the Chinese side that this is just the beginning. It's just the beginning, and this is going to spread to more and more products, to more uh, industries. And then the question is, does it spread to more industries? And then what do the Chinese do in response to that? I just don't see any resolution. I don't see any possibility of an off-ramp. Let's wrap up uh, with a look at kind of what getting back to normal looks like. How does the Chinese economy signal that it has emerged from zero COVID? Uh, Bearing in mind that you actually think that that is not the kind of the greatest scene setter um, that there is in the Chinese economy. Uh, but what are we looking for? What I'm looking for is when the quarantine on foreign visitor ends. That's a sign uh, that I'm looking for. I'm looking for when there are 20 flights a day between the U.S. and the airport in Beijing or the airport in Shanghai. Like right now, there's not a single flight between the U.S. and Beijing. When that happens, I will know that it's now back to normal in terms of COVID. Mm-hmm. In terms of COVID, that doesn't mean that things are, again, I mean, that, that doesn't mean that the economy has recovered, but it just means that the scenario of the last few years is now over. I expect that day to come. So, I, again, I think that this is really a, it's really a short-run issue, and that I think is easily solvable. The question is whether you solve it with a very large cost or whether you, you solve it with a low cost. But the long-run issues are still there. It's serious, and I, I, I don't see a way out. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow, you don't see a way out? I don't see a way, a way out out of the long-run problems in terms of the growing tendency of Western countries to view China as a threat. I don't see a way out in terms of Chinese authorities viewing their own companies as potentially a threat. Mm. Uh, a threat. So I, I don't see a, a, any way to try to resolve this. Ask yourself the question, like the first company, the first Chinese company that people, that the U.S. government viewed uh, as a serious threat to its national security is this company called Huawei, right? And the reason it was viewed as a threat was because it was the dominant company in providing 5G telecommunications equipment. So that was the first company that American authorities cracked down on in terms of trying to restrict flows of technology to the company. But the question to ask yourself is, is there something that the Chinese could do? Is there something that Huawei can do to make, say, the U.S. Defense Department view Huawei as not being a threat to national security? Is there a scenario where the the Defense Department would feel comfortable allowing Huawei to set up the 5G network for the Pentagon? And the answer is no. Right. <laughs> I, I, sure. I just don't see any scenario in which, I'm going to say, this critical infrastructure that people are going to feel comfortable having this critical part of American infrastructure being set up by a Chinese company. And it ties in with sort of the, the earlier point about the control of the government over these large private Chinese companies, even if these are private companies, right? Because if you think about what the fear of the people in the national security establishment in the U.S. is, it's that there could be a point in in the future when the Chinese Communist Party asks Huawei to provide them with some information that they've gathered through their network, and they will have no recourse but to say yes. 
Given all that, what it brings to mind is a headline I saw recently uh, in the South China Morning Post that said that the lifting of COVID restrictions could bring uh, China and its economy back from the brink. Uh, First of all, do you agree that it is on the brink, has been on the brink? Um, And second of all, the lifting of COVID restrictions really doesn't solve these larger looming issues. It is true. I mean, uh, there's no question that if they had continued the COVID restrictions for five more years, China would be in an economic disaster. There's no question about that. But I I never thought that that was a realistic scenario. Uh, uh, So in that sense... China is coming back uh, from the brink. It could have gotten much, much worse. If this had, uh, had gone on, it would have been a total catastrophe. Uh, so in that sense, I, I think the, the piece that you are citing in the South China Morning Post is right. Now, what does that mean? It, it just means that China doesn't enter into the dark ages, but it's, it's going to be stuck at this level where it plods along that it's not the dynamic economy where you have, you know, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs eagerly trying to come up with new products, trying to come up with new technologies, trying to come up with products and, and technologies that dominate the world because there's this fear, you know, I think justifiably so, that if they turn out to be too successful, they're going to get their heads chopped off. So it's, it's going to do just fine. I mean, it's, going to do just, it's not going to be a catastrophe, but it's going to plot along then like Mexico or like Brazil or like any of the other countries which are just fine. Uh, that is, it's not a disaster, but it's not going to be the China of the last three decades. Chang Taishia, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure, you're welcome. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.